7. A World of Signals Order is not an object. Friedrich A. Hayek, 1968 Order is Adjustment. Jan Tumler, 1980 By 1970, the Age of Empire was almost over. Beyond the Portuguese colonies in Africa and persistent white minority rule in much of southern Africa, a world of formerly sprawling empires had segmented into a world of nation-states. The wave of decolonization transformed the membership of international organizations. The number of countries in the United Nations had grown from the original 51 to 127, with African, Asian, and Latin American countries constituting a clear majority. Developing nations organized as the Group of 77, G77, over the course of the 1960s grew from being less than half of the contracting members to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, to being over two-thirds. Neither a seat in the UN nor a voice in GATT equaled automatic power, yet national independence made new political strategies possible. Emboldened by the commodity power flexed by the Arab oil-producing countries in the oil embargo of 1973 to 1974, Global South nations came together in what economist Mahbub al-Haq called, in 1976, a trade union of the poor nations. They wielded state sovereignty as a shield and a sword, using the form of the UN General Assembly to pass resolutions on a New International Economic Order, NIEO, and a Charter of the Economic Rights and Duties of States in 1974, demanding redistributive justice, colonial reparations, permanent sovereignty over natural resources, stabilization of commodity prices, increased aid, and greater regulation of transnational corporations. Neoliberal thinkers saw the European Economic Communities, EEC, Euro-African trade preferences for post-colonial nations as evidence that colonialism had not ended cleanly. Delegates from the G77 also argued that empire had not vanished with formal sovereignty. Private investments following the flag in past models are seen now as precursors of the flag, observed Jagdish Bhagwati in 1977, with brazen colonialism replaced by devious neo-colonialism. In an early influential treatise, Ghanaian President Kwame Nkrumah wrote that the abdication of administration annihilated the need for even an empty performance of accountability. Neo-colonialism was the worst form of imperialism, he wrote. For those who practice it, it means power without responsibility, and for those who suffer from it, it means exploitation without redress. The rule of dominium could be even grimmer than that of imperium. The NIEO sought to ease the sense of impotence through the leverage of UN votes. The 1974 declaration contended that vestiges of alien and colonial domination, foreign occupation, racial discrimination, apartheid, and neocolonialism continue to reproduce inequality after independence. Given the patent refusal of the global north to live up to its own liberal principles by practicing actual free trade in key sectors such as agriculture, Further deviations from the liberal principles themselves were necessary to account for path-dependent inequality. As an Indian delegate to the GATT put it, equality of treatment is equitable only among equals. Because this equality did not exist substantively, Global South nations had to secure the right to bend or secure exceptions from the rules. NIEO demands were necessarily challenges to international law. 
Existing principles of international law, as one expert put it in 1973, restricted the possibility for the measures of domestic economic decolonization necessary to provide the economic complement to legal independence. In 1972, the Senegalese jurist Keba Mbai proposed a right to development, which was adopted by the Commission on Human Rights in 1977 and the UN General Assembly in 1986. In the mid 1970s, the UN International Law Commission set to work on articles to give legal weight to the demands of the NIEO. The NIEO aimed for new legal standards that would permit deviations from free trade and allow for nationalization of foreign-owned property. These were the very transgressions of dominium that neoliberals most feared. Global South rhetoric was reflected in practice. Takeovers of U.S.-owned firms overseas peaked as the NIEO was declared. Seventy-nine U.S. firms were expropriated in 1967 to 1971. Fifty-seven were expropriated in 1972 to 1973. Investors received compensation equal to the seizure in almost every case, but the uncertainty produced by the apparent unsettling of norms of private property was a widespread concern in northern business and government circles. Opponents of the NIEO sought to fine-tune the rules for the world trading system in response to the disruption of predictability for foreign investors produced by such moves. What use were rules, after all, if the North flaunted them in its power and the South deviated from them to compensate for its relative weakness? As we have heard, since the 1930s, the Geneva School neoliberals believed that empire could end as long as private property rights, or what I adapt Hayek to call xenos rights, were protected worldwide, and the free flow of capital and goods disciplined the behavior of post-colonial states. By extending the demand for sovereignty and autonomy from the realm of politics into the realm of property, the NIEO was in direct opposition to the normative neoliberal model of double government. As with the creation of the United Nations in the immediate post-war period, the scaling up of the democracy principle to the international level after the end of decolonization threatened the doubled world of global capitalism envisaged by neoliberals. Scholars have described how neoliberals took aim at the NIEO in the 1970s and defended what they called the liberal international economic order against its ideological challenger. In conferences, articles, and editorials. Neoliberal thinkers presented what one called the case against the new international economic order. Gottfried Habele, who had left his position at Harvard to become the first resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, convened one such conference in 1977. He declared the NIEO a graver threat than either communism or the resurgence of Western protectionism. Hungarian-born conservative development economist and Mont Pelerin Society (MPS) member Peter T. Bauer and W. H. Hutz student Basil Yemi went the farthest in their polemics, claiming that the NIEO would result in not an alleviation of the miseries of poverty, but the spread of totalitarian government. A U.S. economist remarked that Bauer's vehemence had him imagining that the Saracens were at the pass of Roncesvalles. The Golden Horde of the Vistula and Suleiman the Magnificent just outside Vienna. Such was the enormity of the danger to Western civilization posed by the NIEO. The NIEO roused neoliberal ire, disproportionate to the percentage of world trade accounted for by the G77 countries or the means at their disposal for enforcing essentially symbolic UN resolutions. 
beyond the all-important commodity of oil, attempts to build global commodity cartels were rapid failures and demands for colonial reparations fell on deaf ears in Western capitals. Understanding the irritation means recognizing that the NIEO was not acting alone. They found allies among influential northern economists and social democrats mobilized by the NIEO. Acting in solidarity with the G77 in the 1970s, a key cadre of what one contemporary critic called global reformists scaled up their own ideas of Keynesian planning to the world level. The prosthetic extension of human reasoning, enabled by the computer, was essential to the endeavor. The first computer-aided effort at seeing the world economy's future was the Club of Rome's The Limits to Growth in 1972, which forecast the dire consequences if there was not a reduction in global consumption and was actually criticized by many G77 leaders for apparently foreclosing the possibilities of development and not differentiating among the differing responsibilities of different world regions. The second Club of Rome report, published as Mankind at the Turning Point in 1974, was more compatible with G77 demands predicting a growing gap between developed and developing nations without an increase in aid. It was presented in the UN explicitly as a frame of reference in the construction of a new international economic order. The global reformists included Jan Tinbergen, who had sparred with Haberler at the League of Nations and helped bring Keynesian language into the 1958 GATT report. In 1974, Tinbergen began research for the Club of Rome in support of NIEO demands for a reshaping of the international order. The Russian emigre economist Vasily Leontiev, trained at the Kiel Institute for the World Economy, won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics in 1973 for a computerized model of the world economy. The next year he called for a National Economics Planning Board, declaring that the U.S. economy was a gigantic, intricate machine into which one could successfully intervene. In 1976, he took the plan global, publishing the so-called Leontief Report for the U.N. in support of the NIEO. Expressing solidarity with the G77, the global reformists argued that the world economy could be actively reshaped to yield more equitable outcomes through the combination of computers, the right data, and enlightened policy. Opposing the world projects of both the NIEO and the global reformists was a formative struggle for neoliberals in the 1970s. Given what they saw as the G77 misuse of state sovereignty to unsettle world economic order, neoliberals sought ways to circumvent the authority of national governments. By the early 1980s, this manifested in renewed attention to modes of investment protection and third-party arbitration alongside the rethinking of criteria for World Bank aid and IMF assistance that would become known as the Washington Consensus. Equally important was the rise of monetarism, culminating in the so-called Volcker shock in 1979, which dramatically raised U.S. interest rates and thus debt service payments for Global South nations, initiating the Third World Debt Crisis and dealing the death blow to the NIEO movement. Scholars have tracked the rise of the Washington Consensus and shifts in ideologies of monetary governance in the United States. Yet they have overlooked the quiet counter-revolution that the NIEO challenge prompted in Geneva itself. In the 1970s and early 1980s, a trio of experts at the GAD, Jan Tumla, Frieda Rosla, and Ernst Ulrich Petersmann, explicitly applied the ideas of Hayek 
to rethink the international economic order and became the standard bearers of Geneva School neoliberalism. Key was the idea of stratified order, an isomorphism that Hayek perceived from the level of individual human cognition up to society as a whole. The Hayekians at the GATT expanded on Hayek's insight about order to propose a theory of multi-level regulation and multi-level constitutionalism that became influential in the discipline of international economic law, which coalesced in the 1970s and expanded rapidly in the 1990s. Their ideas fed an important intellectual stream that led to the metamorphosis of the GATT into the World Trade Organization, WTO, in 1995. The 1970s staged a stark confrontation of world economic imaginaries. While the G77 and the global reformists envisioned a world economy of nation-states in relationships of unevenness, dependency, and deteriorating exchange produced by a history of colonialism, the GATT reformers followed Hayek to propose a vision of the world economy as a homeostatic, self-equilibrating system, an information-processing mechanism with strata of evolved laws helping to guide price signals to direct the behavior of the world's individuals. At stake was the question of order. Against the NIEO vision of an end state of redistributive justice, Geneva School neoliberals defined order as a perpetually shifting relationship of exposure to stimuli requiring response and adaptation in a necessarily unknowable future. More than simply a rearguard action to defend the status quo, the neoliberals proposed a framework and an ethos to defend the counterintuitive claim that order is adjustment. In the Geneva School version of interdependence, rule-breakers at the margins like the NIEO could threaten the system as a whole and thus needed to be reined in. The neoliberals' remedy was the legalization of international economic relations under conditions of formal equality for states in a reformed GATT. The multi-level calibration of rules would substitute for the NIEO demands of substantive equality and preferential treatment for poorer nations. Drawing on Hayek's epistemology, they introduced what I call cybernetic legalism, which saw individual humans as units within a self-regulating system for which the lawmaker had the primary responsibility of transforming the system's rules into binding legislation. Radical in its own right, the neoliberals' own dream of a new international economic order was a world economy of signals, a vast space of information transmitted in prices and laws. Homo regularis and the pretense of knowledge. Understanding the particularity of Geneva School neoliberalism requires attention to the often misunderstood theories of their most important influence, F.A. Hayek. His theories from the 1970s were critical in linking the fields of law with the unknowability of the economy. Scholars have long argued that cybernetics, system theory, and psychology were the silent and sometimes not-so-silent partners in Hayek's epistemology. Just as one branch of the neoliberal movement extended toward the International Chamber of Commerce after the first meeting of the MPS in April 1947, another extended to the gathering of system theorists at the European Forum Alpbach, which Hayek attended in August 1947, putting him into contact with the leading lights of the new science. Hayek crossed paths again with the system theorists in the 1960s at a conference on the Symposium on the Principles of Self-Organization and at another meeting of the Alpbach Symposium in 1968. 
Hayek's work came closest to system theory in the 1970s, when he combined it with his theory of jurisprudence in his three-volume trilogy, Law, Legislation, and Liberty. He elaborated on his particular take in 1974, when he accepted the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics a year after Leontief had won for his computerized model of the world economy, and six months after the declaration of the NIEO in the UN General Assembly. Hayek's talk struck a discordant note in a decade when confidence in a noble future was at an all-time high. He rejected as the pretense of knowledge the application of the methods of the physical sciences to problems of complex systems like society and the economy. He cited the limits to growth, which used computer simulation to warn of the Earth's dwindling resources as an example of an illegitimate argument made under the mantle of science. Instead, he emphasized the limits to knowledge. Echoing metaphors he had used since the 1930s, he referred to the market as a communication system whose ultimate message could not be foretold. Competition itself was a process of discovering underutilized human knowledge and earthly resources. One could not hope for concrete data about the future to be used for planning. One could only hope for pattern predictions. He conceded this might look like a second-best use for science in the age of grand designs, but argued that a lesson of humility was necessary to fend off man's fatal striving to control society. As with his inaugural speech at Freiburg in 1962, Hayek contended that the world economy, or catalaxy, was sublime. It operated beyond reason, but what he called the abuse of reason could lead to its ruin. To demand a preconceived idea of economic equality in pursuit of the mirage of social justice, was to foreclose the creative capacity of competition, scramble the price signals of the market, and ultimately become the destroyer of a civilization which no brain has designed, but which has grown from the free efforts of millions of individuals. The sanctity of the world economy, above statistics, mathematics, or even sensory perception, must be defended against the synoptic delusion of demands like the NIEO. Hayek's language sounded like the inverse of the discourse of the global reformists. Yet even as he disparaged the fallacy of computer-aided models, he drew inspiration from the same source of system theory. From the language of pattern predictions to his citation of Warren Weaver, Hayek did not argue against system thinking in his Nobel speech, but with it. He made the case explicit when he wrote in the introduction to the third volume of his Law, Legislation, and Liberty trilogy in 1979 that it was largely the growth of cybernetics and the related subjects of information and system theory that led him to modify his own categories. He explained that he had adopted the idea of self-generating order and self-generating structure alongside spontaneous order. In place of order itself, he now often used system. For knowledge, he substituted information— Indeed, while Hayek disparaged the application of computers to economic policy, he offered, as scholars have observed, a vision of the world economy itself as an enormous information processor beyond the capacity of the human mind to either manufacture or comprehend. Cybernetics has its origins in the military research of self-regulating systems during the Second World War, specifically the design of anti-aircraft guns with so-called servo-mechanisms that could follow a target without human guidance. It is most associated with Norbert Wiener, who coined the term in 1947 and helped popularize it with his widely read book. 
Yet despite the association of cybernetics with what Vina called communication and control and the possibility of total oversight within a closed system, Hayek's approach was to see cybernetics as a humble science, eschewing omniscience to identify rules of action and reaction at the micro level, which one could only extrapolate to the macro. He even rejected the term control, suggesting instead, in a metaphor he returned to in his Nobel speech, cultivation in the sense in which the farmer or gardener cultivates his plants, where he knows and can control only some of the determining circumstances, and in which the wise legislator or statesman will probably attempt to cultivate rather than to control the forces of the social process. The metaphor of economic policy as akin to gardening was one of many links between his own thinking and that of Walter Eugen and Hayek's Freiburg colleague, Franz Böhm. Indeed, as I have argued, Hayek's version of thinking and systems often appeared as a variation on the ordo-liberal tradition of thinking in orders pioneered by Eugen. Hayek arrived at his own version of system theory by looking at the place of humans in a range of complex systems that are, in a phrase he borrowed from the Scottish Enlightenment thinker Adam Ferguson, the result of human action but not of human design. Humans fumbled toward understanding without ever arriving at even an approximation of total comprehension. The best they could hope for was a set of rules that did not overly constrain or transgress the overall order. Pattern predictions, as he called them in his Nobel speech. Léon Vera said prices are discovered by groping in the dark, and Hayek saw humans as arriving at rules in a similar way, in an evolutionary process of trial and error, with more efficacious rules surviving as others passed away. He put it poetically in the 1940s, analogizing order to the way in which footpaths are formed in a wild, broken country. At first, everyone will seek for himself what seems to him the best path, he wrote, but the fact that such a path has been used once is likely to make it easier to traverse and therefore more likely to be used again. And thus, gradually, more and more clearly defined tracks arise and come to be used to the exclusion of other possible ways. Human movements through the region come to conform to a definite pattern, which, although the result of deliberate decisions of many people, has yet not been consciously designed by anyone. An important influence on Hayek's evolutionary system thinking was a contemporary acquaintance, Ludwig von Bartalanffy, who was born in Vienna in 1901 and developed his own branch of system theory, named first in 1937. Bertalanffy was careful to distinguish his general system theory from that of Wiener's cybernetics, emphasizing the origins he shared with Hayek in the studies of the Vienna Circle of the 1920s. In the 1950s, Bertalanffy founded a Society for General Systems Theory with the economist Kenneth Boulding and corresponded with Hayek about the latter's monograph on psychology, The Sensory Order. Unlike other system theorists, Bertalanffy was not wed to the computer as the privileged tool of understanding, and he cited Hayek on the point that explanation in principle was often all that was possible in complex systems. The essence of Bertalanffy's theory was the proposition that there is an isomorphism in the objects of study of the various disciplines, such as biology, economics, and psychology. At a basic level, common principles and rules bound all systems of the visible and invisible world. Systems were wholes composed of parts in interaction. Hayek embraced Bertalanffy's promiscuous slippage of analogy between scales and phenomena. For him, the premise of isomorphism meant that metaphor, rather than mathematics, was central to broader understanding. 
qualitative insights about the mind, the market, and the cosmos intermingled freely as diverse instantiations of what he called emergent or spontaneous orders or complex systems. One can approach Hayek's idea of the system by imagining a visit to the seashore. Wading in the shallow water, you may see a school of minnows approaching, traveling in a rough and shifting orb. The school is not regimented into even lines, but it does cohere as a basic shape. As you approach, the orb dissipates, and then reassembles before moving in another direction. Order, for Hayek, must be as unplanned and spontaneous as the movement of a school of fish in water. As he phrased it in 1979, against contemporary attempts at global planning, to explain the economic aspects of large social systems, we have to account for the course of a flowing stream, constantly adapting itself as a whole to changes in circumstances. Attempts to rationally coordinate such motions must fail, and they can diminish the very fluidity and capacity for improvisation that makes the order function. Hayek's successor in Freiburg, Erich Hoppmann, expanded on the metaphor, writing about the V formation of flying geese. One cannot predict the behavior of any individual goose, but one can discern a rule about their overall order. Thus, pattern prediction is possible. The geese themselves did not know the rules, they adhere to the formation through learned and inherited behavior. The roots of Hayek's idea of constitutional ignorance are in the 1930s, but he developed the theory in earnest after the Second World War. A few months after the end of hostilities, in a talk in Dublin, Hayek said that the beginning of liberalism was understanding the limits of individual knowledge. The fundamental attitude of true individualism is one of humility toward the processes by which mankind has achieved things which have not been designed or understood by any individual and are indeed greater than individual minds. Elaborating on this in one of his best-known articles, published the same year, he argued that we each possess only a small amount of information mediated by price, what he called knowledge in an abbreviated form, a kind of symbol by exchanging goods and resources in the free market, we make use of that small amount of information. The sum total of all individual decisions everywhere, informed by their own small piece of the world's knowledge, adds up to a coordination of resources that would be impossible if attempted by a single individual. The whole acts as one market, Hayek wrote. As Hayek described it in the 1960s, the knowledge problem was one of infinite regress on both the micro-scale and the macro-scale. Similar principles govern both the tiniest and largest imaginable orders. As one study puts it, for Hayek, both the mind and the market are complex systems. Another notes that Hayek blurred the level that his analysis operated on, be it brains or individuals or groups. One of Hayek's earliest adult experiences was a winter spent in a Zurich laboratory as a 20-year-old in the year after the First World War, helping an anatomist trace nerve fibers in the human brain. He drew on the experience for both metaphors and his understanding of cognition. To illustrate the difficulty of actually comprehending the system at work, he cited neurobiologists who found that, during a few minutes of intense cortical activity, the number of interneuronic connections actually made, counting also those that are actuated more than once in different association patterns, may well be as great as the total number of atoms in the solar system. Thus, the individual is not the smallest unit of study for Hayek, it is the neuron. And the highest unit of study is not the national or even the world, it is the cosmos. 
there are, strictly speaking, no closed systems within the universe. As part of his attempt to prove the insufficiency of statistics and the opacity of human motivation, in 1964, Hayek conjured up the startling image of herds of computers roving the landscape. What if, he asked, computers were natural objects, which we found in sufficiently large numbers, whose behavior we wanted to predict? We would need to know not only their behavior, but the theory determining their structure and their very programming. Because humans are much more complex structures than computers, we cannot blithely take the individual as the unit of study. The human mind is so complex as to shade off into an incalculable infinity, and the universe is too. We are never able to arrive at a satisfying observation of ourselves either at the level of the neuron or at the level of the galaxy. One of Hayek's core propositions, key to understanding the transformations of Geneva School neoliberalism since the 1970s, is that the market is built on precognitive responses to price signals. In a representative statement from 1963, he claimed, Man does not know most of the rules on which he acts, and even what we call his intelligence is largely a system of rules which operate on him but which he does not know. This deference to the precognitive or the pre-rational is what separated him from the rational choice and rational expectations models of Chicago school economists who professed much more faith in the possibility of both formal mathematical modeling and forecasting. As he explained in his Nobel speech, Hayek saw such efforts as not only presumptuous but misleading. The best one could hope for was pattern prediction. Such prediction was already innate to the way we navigate in the world. In 1964, he wrote of the intuitive capacity of our senses for pattern recognition. We see and hear patterns as much as individual events without having to resort to intellectual operations. Appealing like Hutman to ethology, or the study of animal behavior, he noted that experiments with fishes and birds show that they respond in the same manner to a great variety of shapes which have only some very abstract features in common. This led him to believe that basic reactions involve not simplicity, but an unwitting abstraction, an innate ability in animals, including the human animal, to recognize complexity without realizing they are doing so. It would seem much more appropriate to call such processes not subconscious but superconscious, he argued, because they govern the conscious processes without appearing in them. In a key offhand statement at the Alpbach Cybernetics Conference in 1968, Hayek said that order is not an object, but an order of events. His vision of the world economy is like the school of fish, a complex of neurons, a galaxy, an ever-adapting whole that the human mind can never and must never seek to replicate. The only way to describe the abstract principles within the system was by what the physicists would call a cosmology, that is, a theory of their evolution. The problem of how galaxies or solar systems are formed, he wrote, is much more like the problems which the social sciences have to face than the problems of mechanics. In terms of the future, the capacity to adjust must always prepare for the unexpected. In an evocative analogy from his book on psychology from 1952, he offered the metaphor of the leaf, which avoids being torn to shreds by a high wind by taking up a position of least resistance. What we call understanding, he wrote later, is in the last resort simply man's capacity to respond to his environment with a pattern of actions that helps him to persist. 
the system survives and order results through the reflexive efforts of individuals to reproduce both themselves and the totality. On examination, one finds that in Hayek's theory, the free will of the market actor is surprisingly limited. A metaphor that he returned to more than once is that of iron filings, magnetized by a magnet under the sheet of paper on which we have poured them. The filings will so act on and react to all the others that they will arrange themselves in a characteristic figure of which we can predict the general shape but not the detail. What he concluded from the analogy was that the rules which govern the actions of the elements of such spontaneous orders need not be rules which are known to these elements. Another telling metaphor he favored was that of the attempt to recreate a crystal in a laboratory. We can never produce the crystal directly by placing the individual atoms in such a position that they will form the lattice of a crystal or the system based on benzyl rings which make up an organic compound, he wrote. But we can create the conditions in which they will arrange themselves in such a manner. Hayek's argument was that humans are not as dissimilar from the components of the crystal or the individual iron filings as they might seem. In all our thinking, we are guided, or even operated, by rules of which we are not aware. He recognized that the term knowledge itself is misleading. What we call knowledge, he pointed out, is primarily a system of rules of action, assisted and modified by rules indicating equivalences or differences or various combinations of stimuli. We do not follow the rules because they are based on a higher moral good, nor because we have deduced our way to a conclusion— we follow them because we observe subconsciously that they have secured that a greater number of the groups or individuals practicing them would survive. Man acted before he thought, Hayek wrote, and did not understand before he acted. It may be more accurate to see Hayek as more a proponent of the idea of homo regularis than of the idea of homo economicus. The first commandment of humans is not to maximize profit, but to react to stimuli according to rules in a way that will maximize the chance of survival. Humans to Hayek are rules-following animals. Rules, like prices, are signals directing the individual often at a superconscious level. Hayek's neurosensory conjecture has been explored deeply by scholars both sympathetic to and critical of his thinking. What Philip Mirowski calls Hayek's agnotology is echoed in the presumption of radical ignorance of economic actors in the work of those who seek to explain why Hayek's model is incompatible with the rational search implied in contemporary forms of neoclassical economics. As those metaphors make clear, the idea of agency is diffuse in Hayek's work. One scholar speaks of Hayek's instrumental justification of liberty, by which freedom is essential for the utilization of dispersed, fragmented, and habitual or tacit knowledge— freedom in this reading exists to discover new and better rules. The vanishing of the subject is consistent with system theory in general, where the system itself becomes the protagonist. As one scholar puts it, the seed of causality in Hayek's framework is not the individual, but appears to be the entire web or network. Another goes even farther, saying that the only subject is at the level of the whole system of humanity and history. To Hayek, the autonomous individual is an illusory effect dependent on its relation to the whole, which in turn is dependent on that illusory effect. It should be clear by now that Hayek's most famous metaphor, the road to serfdom, is itself strikingly unhayekian. The metaphor of the road is foreign to Hayek's own cash 
where the more common paths are neural. His own metaphors and examples of crystals, clouds, iron filings, pipes, and switchboards illustrate radial and branching networks of complex interdependence characterized by uncertain outcomes, limited knowledge, and limited agency, not single path routes of intentionality. To Hayek, the idea of an anthropomorphized collective moving purposively on a single path is itself a cognitive monstrosity, the inversion of his normative idea of order. Centralization in what we call a nation or a state, he wrote, is essentially the effect of the need of making this organization strong for war. The problem, in other words, is not just the destination, serfdom, but the form of the metaphor itself, the nation as an autonomous agent and the basic unit of social life. Hayek subscribed to a belief that the economist, the expert, and the policymaker had only limited knowledge. In this reading, the primary threat to order is not animal lower-level impulses, but rational, higher-level impulses. The danger is not so much the law of the jungle as the law of the engineers. Reason, if misused, is the enemy of order. Therefore, one might think that cybernetics itself would be the essence of Hayek's hated constructivism, coming from the Greek word for steersman, unless we acknowledge what my narrative has argued thus far. Geneva School neoliberals did see a limited form of agency within the world economy. They saw individuals as indeed steered by the demands of the International Division of Labor. When functioning properly, the world market itself was the helmsman of human actors. Leading ordo-liberal Franz Böhm followed Hayek's cybernetic metaphors to help elucidate this vision. In his most important post-war text, he wrote that the market price system is, of all the signaling systems produced by society, the most mechanical or exact. Citing Hayek on order, he wrote, The principle of evaluation is, if I may draw on an expression from the field of automation and cybernetics, programmed into the steering mechanism which conforms to the program. The precondition for rational and orderly development is that all members of society are subordinated to the same steering mechanism in the same way. Within both the biological and social sphere, Hayek wrote in a key article, spontaneous orders form as orderly wholes because each element responds to its particular environment in accordance with definite rules. For Hayek, Böhm, and all neoliberals who followed, the most relevant information for the reproduction of the system as a whole is prices. As Hayek put it in an interview, one of Marxism's errors was to see prices as reflective of the labor invested in an object. Actually, prices are important primarily for what he called, using a term from cybernetics, their negative feedback effect. The function of prices, he said, is to tell people what they ought to do. We could take the core of Hayek's philosophy to be this. The apparent paradox that in the market, it is through the systematic disappointment of some expectations that, on the whole, expectations are as effectively met as they are. This is the manner in which the principle of negative feedback operates. Hayek reveals much in this passage. What is privileged in the end is not the individual, but the whole. Injustice is a functional requirement of the system. Underserved strokes of misfortune, he wrote, are an inseparable part of the steering mechanism of the market. It is the manner in which the cybernetic principle of negative feedback operates to maintain the order of the market. The very arbitrariness of undeserved strokes of misfortune increase the pressure on the individual to be as responsive as possible to price signals. 
The centrality of the figure of the entrepreneur for neoliberals can be understood better through this focus on danger. In a short piece on the entrepreneur from 1947, Rupka described the entrepreneur as the node in the enormously complicated process of the market economy. He receives the impulses that the consumers send to him and translates them into the corresponding type and volume of production. In an extraordinary metaphor worth quoting at length, Rupka writes that the entrepreneur sits at a switchgear into which a thousand currents enter to be sent out again in another direction and another form. The private economic fate of the individual entrepreneur depends on the correct operation of this switchgear, and it is precisely this dependency that offers the best guarantee that he will operate the switchgear as conscientiously, zealously, and intelligently as the engineer of a complicated electric locomotive, whom we offer the same trust and confidence because we know that the fate of the train is, at the same time, also his own. By living dangerously, the entrepreneur risks the lives of others and therein risks his own life. Entrepreneurs, Rupka wrote, are subordinated to the sovereignty of the market. Although Hayek disparaged the engineer in the sense of the scientist who believes she has sufficient overview of an entire system to build it herself, he praised the engineer in the sense of the train engineer for reasons similar to Repka's. He wrote in 1945 that the price system is a kind of machinery for registering change or a system of telecommunications which enables individual producers to watch merely the movement of a few pointers as an engineer might watch the hands of a few dials in order to adjust their activities. In a near-identical metaphor from 1941, the engineer was instead the individual entrepreneur who can read off, as it were, from a few gauges and in simple figures the relevant results of everything which happens anywhere in the system. The engineer and the entrepreneur became the ideal switches in the circuitry of the price system by reducing their agency to the response to stimuli in the precarious position of guiding a hurtling locomotive, churning power plant, or capitalist enterprise. Given the lengthy but necessary exegesis, it should be clear why the NIEO would not constitute an order in Hayek's sense. Order is not perpetuated by prescribing goals and desired end states. Instead, the perpetuation of order requires that individuals and states defer to the wisdom of the system. For Hayek, The highest form of rationality is surrender to the greater knowledge of institutions, which are themselves the accretion of successful strategies determined through long-term processes of natural selection. The necessary ignorance must be preserved. Yet where does this leave the activist, neoliberal intellectual, who is eager to intervene? In 1977, fellow MPS member James M. Buchanan complained that To imply, as Hayek seems to do, that there neither exists nor should exist a guideline for evaluating existing institutions seems to me to be a counsel of despair in the modern setting. John Gray contended that Hayek asks us to entrust ourselves to all the vagaries of mankind's random walk in historical space. Does Hayek's version of system theory really prescribe a kind of quietism in the face of the market? How should apparent deviations be corrected in a system of superconscious rules and limited knowledge. These questions came to a head in the late 1970s as neoliberals witnessed what two of them called the undermining of the world trade order in the NIEO and the move of industrialized nations to the new protectionism of voluntary export restraints, orderly marketing arrangements, 
and a whole host of other measures they read as barriers to trade. Interestingly enough, a key opportunity to revisit the chances for post-imperial intervention, putatively against interventionism, came in one of the last remnants of the British Empire in the Crown Colony of Hong Kong. The Thin Line of Deliberate Design The MPS meeting in Hong Kong in September 1978 was its first general meeting outside of Europe and North America. It was special also because it offered a chance for an early celebration of the 80th birthday of the society's first president, Hayek himself. Hong Kong was a remarkable example of the neoliberal fix in a basic form, a model of non-majoritarian market economy that limited popular sovereignty while maximizing capital sovereignty with a much-touted free trade policy, a robust bank secrecy law, and a low corporate tax rate. In many ways, Hong Kong was the inverted version of the demands of the NIEO and the Global South in the 1970s. One speaker at a 1974 MPS meeting observed that because of its exposed and dependent economic and political situation, Hong Kong was compelled to maintain an environment conducive to profitable investment. While Argentine economist Raúl Prebisch and the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America, ECLA, theorized dependency as a negative state to be escaped, neoliberals openly prescribed it as a means of subjecting states to what Hayek called in the published version of his Hong Kong talk, the discipline of freedom. Neither the absence of representative government, nor Hong Kong's colonial status, nor, for that matter, the public ownership of all land, deterred a journalist covering the meeting from describing Hong Kong as the most libertarian major civilized community in the world today. What was admirable, in fact, was its solution to the disruptive problem of democracy. Even as the MPS met in Hong Kong, the Chinese Communist Party was planning its own institutional fix for the People's Republic of China. At the time, mainland China, as a whole, exported no more than the tiny colony of Hong Kong. Deng Xiaoping's reforms started a process toward China's own form of non-majoritarian capitalism, slowly introducing market freedoms without expanding political representation. The price mechanism was permitted without the mechanism of popular sovereignty, the multi-party election. In 1979, China opened the country's first export processing zones in the Pearl River Delta, a region of exception outside of the national tax structure that would become a defining form of neoliberal-style development by the 1990s. This future was distant in the 1970s, however, and in the decade of the NIEO, the situation still looked dire to neoliberals. The Hong Kong Address presented by MPS President George Stigler was titled, Why Have the Socialists Been Winning? The main problem he saw was the same conundrum of democracy that German neoliberals have been diagnosing since the 1930s and American public choice theorists since the 1960s. The political process is strongly biased toward collectivism. Given the possibility that the neoliberal position had become a minority view, Stigler asked, if in fact we seek what many do not wish, will we not be more successful if we take this into account and seek political institutions and policies that allow us to pursue our own goals? He identified a bright spot in Proposition 13, a piece of legislation passed in California that year that put a limit on property taxes and required a two-thirds majority to pass any state revenue measures. Stigler's address was published in the leading neoliberal journal, Ordo. 
It marked a turning point in the acceleration of the neoliberal search for institutional forms that would account for democratic realities but nonetheless lock in market-friendly outcomes. In the same issue, Buchanan laid out a plan for measures similar to Proposition 13 in an article titled Constitutional Constraints on Governmental Taxing Power. The advantage of tax reform in a federal state like the United States meant that the same principle applied that made Hong Kong a successful place of business. The state creates a more attractive investment climate that will encourage people to vote with their feet or with their mobile resources. At the Hong Kong meeting, W.H. Hutt met several South Africans invited by Hayek. It was after the meeting, perhaps inspired by Stigler's call for refinements of the neoliberal fix, that he wrote a seven-page single-space letter to the South African finance minister outlining his plan for weighting the franchise according to one's individual tax bracket. On the face of it, Hayek's talk had little to offer to Stigler's call for institutional design. Unlike Proposition 13, it made no call for higher bars for legislation or for binding states from redistribution. Unlike Hutt's proposal for weighted franchise, it offered no roadmap to link wealth to democratic power. Yet on closer examination, what one participant in the Hong Kong meeting called Hayek's Critique of Sociobiology contained clues about the application of his work to blueprints for global economic governance. Hayek's paper was titled The Three Sources of Human Values and was published as the epilogue to The Political Order of a Free People, the final book of his 1970s trilogy, Law, Legislation, and Liberty. He opened with a direct engagement with contemporary theories of complex systems, charging that sociobiologists like E.O. Wilson saw only two sources of human values, genes and human reason. Hayek made the case for a third term in the non-genetic, non-rational reservoir of culture, interpreted as a tradition of learnt rules of conduct which have never been invented and whose functions the acting individuals usually do not understand. Scholars rightly emphasize the centrality of evolutionary rules, spontaneity, and grown order in Hayek's thought, yet they often miss the fact that Hayek did not replace one pair, Jean's reason, with another, Jean's tradition. There were three layers of rules, he insisted. In the first layer were the unconscious and relatively constant instinctive rules of physiology. In the second were the unconscious and acquired rules of tradition. And the third layer, on top of all this, was the thin layer of rules deliberately adopted or modified to serve known purposes. The first two layers of rules were unknown, more akin to regularity, as he put it, and we follow them unconsciously, just as an iron filing follows the magnet. But the uppermost, thin layer of rules consisted of the products of deliberate design. These were the rules we made through the application of our reason, and which we have to be made to obey. Hayek's tripartite stratification of the rules of conduct explained both individual cognition and the social system as a whole. Like many of his models, this one could easily shift scales. In 1960, he himself had drawn the analogy between the mind and society. Like the forces governing the individual mind, the forces making for social order are a multi-level affair. Articulated rules could work only because they operated on the bedrock of unspoken common beliefs. Hayek's successor in the chair at Freiburg noted that Hayek retained rules of individual conduct in the sense of law as the top layer of a stratification of rules which also comprises instinctive drives and tradition. 
The framing of the known, deliberately designed and articulated rules as a thin layer, or only the top layer, can give the impression that they are dispensable or negligible. Yet while it is true that Hayek's primary intervention was to emphasize the unspoken rules, it is equally true that without the thin layer of articulated rules at the top of the hierarchy, his whole system would fall apart and humans would be equivalent to termites. No matter how thin, the layer of conscious rules is necessary to reproduce social order as such. However slender it might be, what we might call Hayek's thin line of deliberate design is the linchpin of the whole system. Pull it out and order dissolves. It is beyond question that most of Hayek's references to design are negative, especially in his repeated insistence that orders are the products of human action but not human design. But it is essential to note that what he attacks are attempts to design completely. He describes his own project, frankly, as one of constitutional design in the first pages of his 1970s trilogy. Though the top layer of rules may be thin, Hayek viewed it as the only place where humans can actually intervene. Our main interest will then be those rules which, because we can deliberately alter them, become the chief instrument whereby we can affect the resulting order, namely the rules of law. It is helpful here to return to a distinction between planning and design, offered by the philosopher Garrett Hardin in a 1969 article cited by Hayek in his Hong Kong paper. Hardin defined planning as the making of rather detailed, rather rigid plans. By designing, he meant much looser, less detailed specification of a cybernetic system which includes negative feedbacks, self-correcting controls. He added that, the classical market economy is such a design. Whether or not Hayek was inspired by Hardin directly on this point, the distinction helps clarify his writings. It is not difficult to argue that in the 1970s in particular, what Hayek is engaged in was a project of system design. Hayek's model is an economy of principles, or rules of just conduct, as he called them, derived from physiology, the accretion of human tradition, and the site of action, the thin line of deliberate design. It is thus misleading to characterize Hayek's writings from the 1970s as condemning us to, as Gray put it, a random walk. Hayek says in black and white that collaboration will always rest both on spontaneous order as well as on deliberate organization, and labels his project one itself of design. For many scholars, Hayek's focus on the evolutionary, spontaneous, and unconscious aspects of order can distract from the fact that hard law encases the cosmos. Understood correctly, Hayek's meaning is not that we cannot design the social system at all. It is that we cannot design the social system entirely, and that we must design part of it. At the end of the same volume, Hayek provides an explicit example of how this thinking might be transposed to the global level. Though his writings on federation from the 1930s and 1940s are often discussed, his return to the topic in the 1970s has all but escaped scholarly attention. In 1979, in a section calling for the dethronement of politics, Hayek wrote, In this century, our attempts to create an international government capable of assuring peace have generally approached the task from the wrong end. Creating large numbers of specialized authorities aiming at particular regulations rather than aiming at a true international law which would limit the powers of national governments to harm each other. If the highest common values are negative, not only the highest common rules but also the highest authority should essentially be limited to prohibitions. 
Hayek offered here an indication of how his theories on international order, more or less dormant since the end of the war, could be scaled up to the global. A cadre of neoliberals would do just that by reviving Hayek's thought in Geneva. Retaliating against the G-77 with its own weapons, their solution to the NIEO was to fight law with law. The reform of the GATT would become, in part, a laboratory for Hayekian system design at the scale of the world.